Welcome back to the Big Green Politics Podcast. I'm Julia and this episode we'll be talking about something a little different. We're going to be talking about the conservation industry and conservation organisations, especially in light of two big news stories that hit the headlines in recent weeks, which reveal the impact that conservation measures can have on indigenous people and local communities. Protecting wild animals and nature is naturally a key part of the environmental and green movement, and one that's very close to people's hearts. But what conservation looks like, and how it's done and by whom, is mired in questions of power relations, and is increasingly becoming a subject of contention. I talked to Chris Lang from Conservation Watch and Red Monitor to ask him about these stories, the current model of conservation, and human rights and indigenous people within it, and why it must change. The episode will contain some description of violence and sexual violence. Right. Hi, Chris, and thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. Um, I've been wanting to talk about this issue for such a long time, so thank you for taking the time to talk about such an important yet sidelined issue in the political and environmental activism worlds. So I came across you through the website you run called Conservation Watch. Can you tell us a bit more about Conservation Watch and why you set it up? First of all, thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. Conservation Watch was set up in September 2016. Um, It was set up then to coincide with the IUCN World Conservation Congress, which is a huge meeting that took place then in Hawaii of loads and loads of organizations and researchers who are working on conservation. And conservation in itself is actually a huge topic, although, as you mentioned, it's quite often sidelined. There's more than 200,000 protected areas in the world, and they cover in total more than 46 million square kilometers, if you include marine protected areas. So that's a huge area of the world. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's bigger than the continent of Africa. It's enormous. The problem that Conservation Watch is looking at is that indigenous people lived in or regularly used many of these protected areas before they were declared protected. And what happened way too often is that they were just kicked out to make way for conservation. So this is the dark side of conservation. The result of this is that the people paying the price for these protected areas are indigenous peoples and local communities. And how did you first come across this topic? Actually, one more thing I I should say about Conservation Watch is is that it was run with funding and support from Rainforest Foundation UK. So just just to be transparent about who's funding it and the organisation that's behind it. Okay. So my, my personal story, how I came to be involved in these issues, without going too far back, um, in, mm-hmm. in the mid-1990s, um, I worked in Thailand with a Thai organization that's called Towards Ecological Recovery and Regional Alliance. And one of the areas, I, I mean, we were looking at environmental issues in Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, and Burma. Mm-hmm. 
And one of the issues that we came across again and again was the impact on indigenous peoples in national parks who were living in national parks or around national parks and the impact that that had on their livelihoods. So one of the indigenous groups that we were working with and talking to and so on were the Karen. And they, they lived in the forest way before the government decided that their forest was going to be a national park. And what happened when it was declared a national park was all of a sudden the Karen became illegal and their livelihoods were illegal. Mm. And, and obviously this had a devastating impact on their livelihoods and way of life. Mm. And one of the most interesting things for me was, was a visit that I managed to do to some Karen villages who were living in the Western Forest Complex, which is um, not far from the border with Burma in the west of Thailand. And in, in this particular village, the Karen were managing a 10,000 hectare community forest. And it was an area that had been part of a logging concession, but the Karen had managed to win back the rights to that land. And, and for me, that was, that was just fascinating. We spent a couple of days just walking through the forest. And the, the whole time, the Karen were explaining to me that bit over there, that's conservation forest. This bit that we're walking through, these are fruit trees that we've planted. Mm-hmm. There was a bit further away that was part of a rotational Sweden farming system. There were other areas that were for collecting medicinal herbs. There, there was an area that they were using for cutting timber, for building their houses. So just, you know, from the outside, you kind of look at it and say, oh, yeah, it's a forest. But to the Karen, it was a whole series of different ecosystems. Wow, that's that's fascinating. I haven't heard about the Karen before and their story. And what, what happened in the end? Did they manage to, like, are they still living around the forest? Or? Well, it, I think, I believe that this particular village is basically has the rights to its community forest. And it's still living there and still managing that forest. But then mm. in other areas, the, the Karen live in large areas of northern Thailand and Myanmar, as it's now called. And in other areas of Thailand, they're still facing evictions. Um, their houses are being burned down and they're still struggling to get the rights to live in what is basically their forest. OK, so this really reflects something that's going on worldwide, doesn't it? Because I guess the most recent example that has got global attention is in India recently, where millions of indigenous people were evicted from the forests um, when the Supreme Court ruled that they weren't allowed to be there and that that area had to had to be passed over for conservation. So this this kind of thing has been happening for years. Yes, it has. I, I mean, there was, there was a book um, put out in 2009, I think, by a journalist called Mark Dowie called Conservation Refugees. And the subtitle is The Hundred Year Conflict Between Global Conservation and Native Peoples. So, yeah, this is a struggle that's been going on for a a very long time. Mm. But but just to go back to, uh, you were talking about the Supreme Court decision in India, Mm -hmm. which could result in the eviction of millions of forest-dwelling people. And and this is uh, an extraordinary case. It was filed in 2008 by a a small group 
of wildlife conservation organizations. And it took, you know, until February 2019 for the Supreme Court to make a ruling. And, and basically what it's about was, or is, because it's still ongoing, it's the 2006 Forest Rights Act in India, which basically recognizes the rights of indigenous peoples and forest dwelling people to live in their ancestral lands, including in protected areas. So, so this is quite or very progressive legislation. And what the wildlife conservation organizations wanted the Supreme Court to do was basically declare the Forest Rights Act invalid. And the Supreme Court rejected this demand. But there was a second part of the case that looked at people who have made claims under the Forest Rights Act to their traditional forest lands, but they'd been rejected. And what the mm -hmm. Supreme Court ruled in February was that these people should be evicted. And they, they even set a deadline of the 27th of July for these people to be evicted. And oh, gosh. I, yeah, I, I, it's just completely crazy. I, I mean, the government didn't even turn up to the Supreme Court to defend the Forest Rights Act. So it's shortly afterwards, the government petitioned the Supreme Court and a few days after the first decision, the Supreme Court postponed the deadline for the evictions. So the court is now going to sit again on the 10th of July. Worry about all of this is this is just postponing the eviction because mm. obviously there was a huge outcry about this mm. when it happened. And, you know, the danger is that in July, everyone's forgotten about it, but hopefully there will mm. be another huge outcry again. But it, one of the saddening things about it, there, there were many conservation scientists in India who opposed the evictions and came out publicly and stated their opposition. But WWF India was completely silent on the mm. issue. And I, I've just had, just before we started talking, I had a look at WWF India's website and the word evictions doesn't appear anywhere on the website. Mm. And I, I just I just cannot see how you can remain silent in the face of such a massive eviction mm. without being complicit in those evictions. Mm. It does seem to be that I don't think people realize that when they're giving money to WWF or these big conservation charities, organizations, that they're leading sometimes quite directly to people literally being evicted from their land or being kind of unable to enter the forest that they and their families have lived in for years. And um, it, it's quite incredible that it's only just coming to light, really, that this is what's happening with organizations like WWF. Yeah, well, um, of course, last week, WWF really hit the headlines as a result of a year-long investigative report by BuzzFeed News. And I think, you know, we really have to congratulate BuzzFeed News for, for doing the research they did and digging out the information that they managed to get hold of. Mm. So, so, I mean, one of the examples is uh, in the Lobeke National Park in Cameroon, where BuzzFeed News managed to get hold of WWF budgeting documents that showed just how closely WWF were working with the government's eco-guards who were patrolling the national park. 
So WWF trained the guards, they paid their salaries, they built their homes, they bought equipment for them, including radios, satellite phones, 4x4 vehicles and boats, and WWF allocated money for enforcement activities. So that includes things like patrols and raids on people's houses. And WWF even shares its office with the eco guards. So not far from WWF's office is the jail where the eco guards throw in suspected poachers. So, you know, WWF knows what's going on. There is no possible way that they can claim that they didn't know about this. Mm. And, and there are really serious human rights abuses taking place. So, for example, in 2017, um, eco-guards tortured an 11-year-old boy in front of his parents. The village where this took place has actually made a complaint to WWF, but the family still hasn't heard anything back from WWF. Oh, my gosh. And, and that's just one example of, of many of mm. really serious human rights abuses at the hands of eco-guards and basically wow. in the name of conservation. I, I was listening, I'm sorry, I was reading the article about this and this quote really jumped out at me. It said, villagers have been whipped with belts, attacked with machetes, beaten unconscious with bamboo sticks, sexually assaulted, shot and murdered by WWF-supported anti-poaching units. Yeah. I mean, that's just such a human rights scandal. It's just incredible. Yeah, yeah, it's disgraceful. And one of the things that really bothers me about this is, is WWF's attitude to it. Mm. Um, so another example from the BuzzFeed News story was a, a villager in Nepal who was tortured and killed by eco-guards in 2006. Wow. And WWF's response to this was to go to the villagers and ask them to keep quiet about it. And when the government dropped the legal case against the eco-guards, WWF declared this as a victory. Wow. And WWF continued to work with the eco-guards that were involved. And one of them was even awarded WWF's Living Planet Award in 2014. And it was oh WWF's president at the time who personally handed over the award to him. For me, the really disgraceful thing about all of this is that the eco-guard, whose name's Kamal Jung-Kunwa, had actually published a book about his work as an eco-guard. And in this book, he talks about his favorite interrogation technique, which is basically waterboarding. Oh, my gosh. He, he describes how he poured water into the suspect's nose. And he says into their eyes and nose, presumably holding them upside down. And he says that this method is very useful in obtaining information. And this guy won a prize from WWF. That's so shocking. Yeah, it's it's just one shocking story after another. It's yes. appalling. And it, it doesn't seem that this is something that WWF necessarily is very keen to address 
in 2014, I did an internship with Survival International, which is this tribal rights charity, which has been one of the first organisations alongside Forest People's Programme to kind of talk about the human right abuses against Indigenous people in the name of conservation. And back in 2014, they were already contacting WWF about reports that they were hearing about eco-guards in Cameroon and what they were enacting against the Baka people. But they, they were getting no response from WWF at all. And they weren't really ready to engage on this. And it seemed like as long as it didn't seem to hit the headlines, they were just going to try and keep that under wraps. So this is something that they've known about for a long time, right? Y yes, yes, that, that's true. And, and I've been following for a few years the work of Survival International and Forest People's Programme and several other organisations that have been highlighting the impacts of conservation on Indigenous peoples. And, and one, of, one of the extraordinary things is the way there'll be some kind of shocking report about what's happened or what is happening, followed by a cover-up. So, so an ex another example of this was in 2004, an anthropologist called Matt Chapin wrote a paper that was published by the World Watch Institute. And his, his title of this paper was A Challenge to Conservationists. And he looked at three of the big conservation organizations. We, I, I think we need to be clear that this isn't just WWF. Hmm. So, Matt Chapin also looked at the Nature Conservancy and Conservation International. And one of his big criticisms of these organizations is how closely they work with some of the most destructive companies on the planet. So they'll quite happily jump into bed with logging companies, oil companies, mining companies. And by doing so automatically, they're working against the indigenous people and local community who are impacted by these logging companies mm. or mining companies or oil companies. So one of the interesting things about what happened after that report came out, one of the things he did was questioned the organizations that were funding these big three conservation organizations. And so the Ford Foundation commissioned a report in response to Chapin's Challenge to Conservationist paper. And the report is pretty critical. And it raised questions about the accountability of these organizations mm. and said that publicly available evaluations of these organizations should be done, should be carried out. But the funny thing about this was that this was an internal report. The Ford Foundation has never released this report. It wasn't available to the public. And they didn't, wow. even, they didn't even make copies available to their own board. Some of the board wow. members got copies of it, and the report has subsequently been leaked. But at the same time, that their internal report was saying, we need publicly available evaluations. The Ford Foundation was <laughs> quiet about it. One of my big concerns about this latest controversy stirred up by BuzzFeed News is how WWF is, is going to respond. They've put out a very short statement on their website, which states that 
amongst other things. They state, respect for human rights is at the core of our mission. And they say that they're going to do an independent review, which if it's genuinely independent and if it's made public, that would be a good thing. But The Guardian reports that WWF has hired a London-based law firm called Kingsley Napley. And this company is not known for its expertise in indigenous people's rights. One of the, the company's areas of work is reputation protection. Yeah. And when you look at the people that the company has represented, it's, um, it's another shocking part of this story. So they represented General Pinochet when Spain was trying to extradite him. Right. They, they represented Rebecca Brooks after the news of the world phone hacking scandal. They represented Nick Leeson, who was the fraudulent trader that brought down Bearings Bank. They represented Rolf Harris, who is currently in jail for five years. And now, WWF. Wow, that's a stellar group of people. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, my goodness. But it it seems like, however they deal with this particular case, WWF, it doesn't seem like this is an isolated case because this is something that's just happening across the board in the conservation world, isn't it? Like the Kenyan Wildlife Service has been reportedly, you know, involved in human rights abuses. And as you said, all the kind of major global conservation organisations seem to have bought into a model of conservation that involves necessarily excluding the people that live in the areas they supposedly want to protect, right? It, that's, it seems to be inbuilt in how they do conservation, that they're working against the people who live in those territories. Do you think that's correct? Yes, and I think I think that's a large part of what the problem is. And one of the things I, I looked at on Conservation Watch, maybe we can put the link to this article following the podcast. Sure. There's a significant body of literature that shows that deforestation is actually lower in community-managed forests than in strictly protected forests. So a, a key part of successful conservation has got to be to do with securing the land rights of the indigenous peoples and local communities that live in and near the forest. Mm. And to some extent, some of the, the big international NGOs working on conservation have started to acknowledge that this is the case, in, at least in, in what they say. But in terms of what they're doing, it's a, it's a completely different story. Mm. And why do you think there's this disconnect between you know, what they say in terms of working with indigenous people and local communities and then what they're actually doing on the ground? Is it to do with funding? I I honestly, I'm at a complete loss to understand how this has gone on for so long. Mm. I suppose there's a certain amount of kind of internal bureaucracy involved in in the sense that this is what these organisations have always done and this is the way that they work. And and so it's kind of in their DNA to work in this particular way. Mm. A serious part of the problem is that they're aiming to protect very large areas of land, which are in other people's 
countries. Mm. And so obviously one of the things they have to do is work very closely with the government in those countries. So they will not criticize the governments of some of the most corrupt governments on the planet in order to achieve what they what they want to achieve, which is more and more national parks. Yeah. As you say, I think part of the reason for that is they can show their funders that they've got another national park set up. Mm. Well, one example highlighted by BuzzFeed News and that Survival International has documented for several years now is in the Republic of Congo, where WWF has been pushing to set up the Mesokjo National Park. Can you talk a bit about WWF's relationship with its funders in this particular case? Yeah. In 2016, they had a big break when the EU promised to give a million euros on condition that they carry out a process of free, prior and informed consent with the indigenous people who live around the national park. And so in a report to the EU that BuzzFeed News managed to get hold of, WWF says, oh yeah, we carried out a process of free prior and informed consent and the indigenous people support the national park. What they didn't say was that the year before they carried out an internal report, which again BuzzFeed News managed to get hold of a copy. And that report showed very clearly that while some some of the Baka villagers weren't entirely opposed to the park, some of them were completely opposed to it. And they were living in fear of what the eco guards were doing. And they thought they think that if a national park is set up, the abuses at the at the hands of the eco guards will only get mm. worse. So, so I, I mean, I think that very well highlights this kind of dual role that WWF is playing, where it says one thing to its funders, and even internally, it's fully aware that what it's saying to its funders is not true. And it seems to be that this this model of conservation that conservation organisations put in place, which involves emptying areas of the people that live there, even though they're the ones who've been curating and managing the biodiversity and the, the fauna and flora there, that this model of conservation where that's the only way that you can see to protect an area is to empty out all the humans, it seems to intersect in practice with the racism that indigenous people often face in their societies, which sees them as kind of um, savages, backwards, and that governments have been trying for so long to to kind of forcibly assimilate them. And they've been protected by international laws that require free, prior and informed consent and that give them access to, well, ownership over their land in some cases. But now it seems like this is a new way that their land is being grabbed and that they're being evicted, effectively. So it's, it, it seems like the, the conservation model that we're talking about is intersecting with that, that drive that is decades long of trying to basically get rid of indigenous people and how they live. Yeah, I mean, that, that is the, the scary aspect of this, that the governments that WWF is working very closely with do not have progressive policies on indigenous peoples. And even if they do, the danger is that on the ground, those policies are effectively meaningless. Mm. So what happens to 
indigenous people or communities that were living on an area that has now been turned into you know a tiger conservation area or something where do they go and what what happens to them well yeah that's um a very good question and i think uh, obviously a key problem with this model of conservation is that what it does is totally takes away indigenous people's livelihoods mm. and because they're, they're dependent on the forests. You know, they go to the forest to collect their food, to collect fruit, to hunt for animals for their own subsistence, to collect medicines. So when they're told that the forest is suddenly out of bounds, that's it. They've got nowhere to turn. And you see indigenous peoples forced to move away from the area, which, which is precisely where the term conservation refugees comes from. It's not as though they're refugees in the sense of, of moving from one country to another necessarily, but they're forced to move away from their ancestral territory and to move into cities mm. and towns and basically start from scratch and try and eke out a living in mm. the city. The tragic part of this is that it's the indigenous peoples who know the most about the forests. You know, right right at the beginning, I was telling you about my visit to the forest with the Karen. It, it was extraordinary, to me at least, just how much they had to say about what was a walk in the forest. Just as we were walking along, they'd say, oh, you can eat that. Oh, that's a medicine plant. Oh, look, that tree's growing very well. We'll be able to use that in 10 mm. years. And there was just this constant stream of information about the forest and you know they they could tell me which animals lived where in the forest and you know which times of year you might see them and which times of day and so mm. on and they, their knowledge about the forest was just extraordinary mm. and it's a completely different level of knowledge to the knowledge that you know you get when you study forestry i studied forestry and I learned so much more about forestry in two days with the Karen mm -hmm. in Thailand than I did in a year of sitting in lecture theatres in Oxford. Mm. Not that it was a very good course, actually. I should <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the indigenous people's knowledge about the environment in which they live and the environment on which they are dependent is just extraordinary. Mm. And, and that knowledge is being wiped out by this model of fortress conservation. I've seen some really astounding facts about this. Um, Rainforest Foundation UK, which is the organisation that funds Conservation Watch, um, has said that over half of the world's protected areas are found on lands traditionally inhabited by Indigenous people. And there's also research that has shown that Indigenous people Although they comprise less than 5% of the world's population, they protect 80% of global biodiversity, which is just incredible. And it seems like not only does this current model of conservation in its own right harm people, commit human rights abuses, um, create conservation refugees, but it also seems to be shooting itself in the foot in that it's, it's missing the opportunity to work with the, the very people that have curated the environment to make it need protection now, to make it worthy of protection because it's so full of biodiversity. Yeah, exactly. And actually talking about Rainforest Foundation UK, they're doing some very interesting work 
in the Congo Basin where they are working with indigenous peoples. And the approach that they're taking is to map the indigenous people's land. Basically, it's the indigenous people who are doing the mapping of the land with Rainforest Foundation UK facilitating that process. So, so it's, it's a complete reverse of the, the fortress conservation approach to conservation. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask you more about the positive examples of conservation that's working hand in hand with local communities around the world. Does that happen a lot? Yes, there are, I mean, there are an awful lot of examples of indigenous peoples and local communities who are managing their own natural resources and taking care of those natural resources. So, so yeah, one example is the Indigenous and Community Conserved Area Consortium, the ICCA Consortium. And, and they're working with organisations that are that are documenting and working with communities that are protecting their own environment. And so on, on Conservation Watch, one of the first posts that we had was a guest post from Grazia Borini Fire Arvind of the ICCA Consortium, and where she explains the work of the consortium and gives some examples of, of how it worked. So, so mm. one, one of the things I was actually I was hoping to do more of with Conservation Watch, but so far haven't really got stuck into is kind of good news stories of precisely this sort of thing where communities are managing their forests. Mm. Part of the problem is that there's so many scandals and human rights abuses <laughs> going on yeah. that you know I need two people <laughs> one to do good news or maybe we could mix it up. <laughs> mix it up so it's not too depressing for one person. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think that that would be really interesting to see more examples of, of positive collaborations. And because I think what I find really interesting about this issue and quite difficult to bring up with people here is that so many of the people who get involved in with and fund organisations like WWF or the Nature Conservancy uh, are people who really care about nature and animals and a lot of the people who work in these organisations, obviously, it's the same there. It's good intentions. But then in practice, what what happens is such a kind of violent, unpleasant, racist way of implementing the protection of animals, as we've talked about. But I think people don't realise and people also um, find it quite hard to process that and don't really know what the alternative is. So my next question would be, what can we do as environmentalists? and politically engaged people as well from political institutions, what can we do to highlight the problems, the, the human rights violations, the evictions, and support the positive conservation collaborations that are going on? Well, I, I think politically, at, at the political level, mm. one thing that's very important, and to be honest, I don't know how much the Green Party is doing on this, but I, I think politically pushing for the funders, these big international NGOs, conservation NGOs, basically to take a very close look at what's happening on the ground. So exactly what happens with the money when the EU gives a million euros to WWF, mm. what are the implications of that money for indigenous peoples living in the area that WWF is working mm -hmm. in? And part of that, I think as well, 
uh, involves raising questions about the militarization of conservation, mm. which, which is something that's been taking place gradually over a number of years, but which is exacerbating the problem. It's not helping solve the problems that fortress conservation is raising. It's just making them way worse. And on that note, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast, Chris. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. All right, folks, that's our show. You can follow us on Twitter at Big Green Hall Pod. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. You can find us on any podcast platform. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And lastly, if you want to give us feedback, email us at biggreenpoliticspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much and see you in two weeks.